Hello and welcome back to the SLP Corner Podcast. This week's guest is Anna Dalzell, also known as Anna DSLP. She is a registered speech-language pathologist who works primarily with three to six-year-olds with severe speech and language delays. Anna loves play-based therapy, treating speech sound disorders, and working closely with families and school staff. She is a proud mom of two young boys, and she's a Teachers Pay Teachers author of speech therapy materials at Anna DSLP. Feel free to connect with Anna for all things speech and language. I've linked her Instagram, her Facebook, and her Teachers Pay Teachers pages in the description of this podcast, so you can feel free to check that out. And with that, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on today. So today we're going to be talking about late talkers. We're going to dive into some discussions on pre-linguistic skills, autism, and symbolic play. So I thought we could just start by talking about a very popular topic, which is late talkers. Before we kind of dive into that, I'm just going to kind of let everyone know what we mean when we say the word late talkers. So late talkers can be characterized as a child with less than 50 words at 24 months of age or no word combinations at 24 months of age. So compared with a typically developing child who would have around 100 words at 24 months of age, and they're also combining words. We're very focused on word size and late talkers. That's what people really hang on to. That's how I just described it right now. <laughs> so what else do SLPs assess other than word size and late talkers? This is a great question. So you know, when families go in to see pediatricians or their family doctors, that's often the question they ask. How many words are they using? And that's kind of they're screening. So a speech language pathologist, we look at so much more than that. So when I see a kiddo come in and the family is concerned that their vocabulary size isn't large enough, I guess I want to find out, are they actually a late talker or is there something else going on? Areas that we assess would be receptive language. So receptive, the core of that is received, so understanding. So I look at their ability to follow directions. I look at their ability to understand concepts. So things like top, bottom, big, little, and their understanding of simple words. So by definition, a late talker has age-appropriate receptive language skills. Other things that we look at are play skills, which are really, really important because they are very much linked to expressive language. So you might have a kiddo that's coming in and is using no words, but is using a lot of symbolic play and have another child come in that isn't using a lot of words and isn't using that symbolic play. And even though their vocabulary size is the same, I would be more concerned or have uh, red flags about the child that isn't using that symbolic play. We also look at pre-verbal skills. So this is something that is really important and I find is really overlooked. Even even sometimes by speech language pathologists, there are 11 pre-verbal skills that kids need to have. So are they initiating interaction with others? So if they see something really cool, are they running over to show mom? Are they running over to show you? Are they taking turns? I actually just watched my friend do this with her little baby and he was only seven weeks old and she stuck her tongue out and he stuck his tongue out. So is there that back and forth turn taking? Because obviously turn taking is the foundation of conversation. So we look at that. Imitating, which definitely goes into that turn taking, but it might be even something that they saw you do earlier. So for example, you clap your hands when you hear a song, are they going to clap, clap their hands the next time they hear it or even then? Um, what is their attention span like? Are they able to sit and play with a toy, attend to a book, or are they just running actively from one activity to another without actually engaging with anything? So this is really long. So this is, <laughs> there's a lot that we look at. Are they using gestures? So Children should have 16 gestures by 16 months. Some of the early developing ones are waving, pointing, reaching. Are they putting their hand out when they want something? Um, gestures are, again, are symbolic. They're a symbol of a word, right? Just like that's 
well, we'll talk a little bit more about symbolic play later, but it's kind of showing that children understand that a word can, or a, sorry, a sign can mean a word which represents an object. So that understanding of that. Um, are they reacting to their environment and people? If there's a loud sound, are they looking towards it? If someone comes in the room, are they recognizing that? And then joint attention. So are they able to understand that someone else has a different perception of what's going on than they do? Not everyone has the same things in their brain. Are they able to kind of join their attention to one item? So they might look at the ball, look at the person, and then look back at the ball to kind of understand that we're all looking at the ball. Gonna keep on going. And we also get a really uh, thorough history, which can also be in, uh, give us a lot of information. So medical history, are they babbling? Is there family history? Positive family history always is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of a red flag. Um, have they lost any skills? So were they talking before and now they're not? That's also not something we see in typical development. A history of ear infections, which can certainly um, impact um, how many words kids are using in their language development. And then I also look at how many different consonant sounds they're using. So are they using a variety of sounds? Are they able to combine them? Um, in different ways. So I guess at the end of the day, <laughs> if it's, if it's, I don't want to say just, but if it's just a child that's coming in that has a small vocabulary, but all those other things are okay, then I would say they're a late talker. But I do find that word late talker is used for kids that maybe have concerns in some of those other areas and they're not they're not late talkers by definition. Thank you for just listing all of that. <laughs> that was a very crash course in assessment. <laughs> I love it. I was actually thinking that would be really nice for a parent who's having maybe an initial consult coming up because it's kind of like what to expect when you are going to an initial consult as well, because it's not simply just their speech and language. It's so many more things we're looking at. So it probably will make more sense now if parents are going into assessment and they see that we're looking at sharing, turn-taking, joint attention, perspective taking kind of why we're doing that. Yeah, I think the pre the pre-verbal or pre-linguistic skills are so interesting. And they're not talked about that much. Like you said, you recently shared a chart. Oh yes. By Laura Mize, who is my like speech pathology idol. Like I love her. I love everything she does. Um, and honestly, that has oh, that opened my own eyes. Like I had been practicing for seven years. And I mean I knew that kids needed to be doing these things, we learn about that in school and I would definitely look at them, but I don't think even I as a speech pathologist realized how important they are and how these skills really, really build on each other. Like you, you can't use words if you're not reacting to things in your environment. You can't use words if you don't have joint attention. Like it's just, they're really, I think she just solidified how important they really are. It's not something that, and you don't even work on them simultaneously. You work on them in the order that they develop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that so interesting. I'm going to put that in the description of the bio because I found that so helpful looking at, looking at it because it just really, it simplifies everything and it kind of gives you like a schema in your own brain of what to look for. Definitely. And I think it really helps families because they want to work right on words, right? They want to come in and we want to work on words and then kids aren't making progress and they're not making progress because they're not imitating gross motor actions yet. They're not imitating or they're not, they don't have joint attention. They're not taking turns. So yeah, we can keep trying to do that, but they don't have the foundation foundational skills, right, to do it. So we're just setting everyone up for frustration if we're not working on the right thing. So it's a really important part of an assessment with a late talker. Yeah, and that makes so much sense what you said about decreasing frustration for parents because I could see if a parent's like, but they're not talking and I could see them wanting to just, I wanna focus on talking, talking, mm -hmm. but it's like, we're taking more of a developmental approach where 
we're working on the things that should be appearing before words anyways. Right. And, and explaining that to them and then they can celebrate the successes in those, I don't want to call them small milestones because they're definitely not small, but they can see progress because they see their child learning these pre-linguistic skills. And I do find sometimes it is hard for parents because they really just want to work on those words. But if we, but it's, it's better when you can see growth than, than just being frustrated, chasing a goal that your child's not ready for it. you wouldn't ask a six-month-old to walk it's the same if you don't have those underlying skills it's just it's just yeah frustrating yeah that makes so much sense and I like how you explained it like even for me you saying a late talker they do just have it's like the limited vocabulary because we do use that word a lot and it can be not <laughs> ideal because if you're calling kids who don't have some of these pre-linguistic skills and they're missing out on a lot of that if you're calling them all late talkers that can be it does because then I think you get right into the attitude of we need to treat them and, and get them to have more words, but really there's all these other things we need to, we need to teach them how to play. We need to teach them symbolic play. We need to teach them all these other things. We need to work on receptive language because that is also imperative in learning to use words, right? You kids have to understand the words before they can say them. So even though what we might see is not using a lot of words, what's going on with kids who aren't late talkers is there's other things that we need to remediate. Whereas with late talkers, if that was the only thing is the vocabulary size, then go for it. Like we're working on words, we're modeling, we're, we're using all of those kinds of strategies. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So speaking of strategies, mm -hmm. what are some strategies to help late talkers? I think it's really important to see what level the child is. So the strategies that I'm kind of going to talk about today, I would use for a lot of different types of skills. So I tried to pick ones that are applicable to lots of kids, but it's really important for parents to work with their speech language pathologists to find strategies for their child. But one strategy that's great, is imitate and add. And I love this strategy because you can imitate sounds, you can imitate actions, you can imitate words, you can imitate play. So this strategy is an easy one for parents because whatever level their child's on, they can use this. So if their child says ba, they say ba, and then they add one thing. So it might be ba, ball, and they're adding the actual word. If their child is laying a baby down, the adult can take a baby, lay it down, and cover it with a blanket. So the imitating and adding is a great one for families. So whatever your child is at, we just want to add a little bit more. So I like that strategy. Another strategy is following your child's lead. So that's going to be applicable for children of all developmental levels. Kids are going to be more engaged in what they like. Honestly, going in as a speech language pathologist my first year, I had a really hard time accepting this, I think, because I'm like, I want to do this and I want to do that. But I'm going to tell you what, it's a lot easier for an adult to join a child than a child to join an adult. So, you know, if the child is driving their car up the wall and dropping it down, you are going to talk about that. You're going to talk about up, car up, down, whatever it might be. If the child wants to splash in the sink with water, do it. Now, the reason for that is because they're going to engage with you longer. They're going to pay attention to those words more because they're relevant to them. So we could bring out something that they're not really interested in. So let's just, I'll stick with the cars. I'll bring out cars, but the little person doesn't like cars. Well, they're not really going to care that I'm modeling vroom, go, stop. But let's say they really like hockey. So they like hockey and they have their hockey stick because they've seen their brother playing hockey and dad. Okay, then I'm going to start doing that too because those vocabulary is going to be more relevant to them. So you'll get more out of the kids and help them make progress. And the last thing that I would suggest, and again, I think this is a good strategy for all kids, is using open-ended toys. What that means is toys that can be used in a lot of different ways. There's no right way to use them. The toy doesn't really do anything. The child is the one doing. So like blocks bubbles, 
figurines, things that you can use a variety of different ways. Nothing that's like, oh, you push a button and then a light turns on. That's not really going to elaborate on their play. The only time I would use those kind of toys is if I was trying to teach cause and effect. Otherwise, just using really open-ended toys. Okay, so to recap, imitate and add, follow the child's lead, and using open-ended toys. Those are kind of the three that could work with kids that are truly late talkers and kids that are, uh, maybe there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. I really like imitate and add how you explained it because I think so often the examples for that type of strategy is very much speech and language. So adding a word. So I like how you said imitate and add to their gestures, imitate and add to their play. It can go for so many different types of things. Definitely, yeah. And then follow the child's lead. That is such a game changer. It is, isn't it? <laughs> I think the hardest thing about working with little kids or playing with little kids, what makes it the most challenging is when you do not follow their lead because they want to play what they're interested in playing. Like they're not going to adapt to what you want to do. <laughs> That's developmentally normal. Like that is a hundred percent normal for children to be very egocentric and that is what they want to do. And I even like as a speech path for 10 years, I remember talking to our psychologist at our school district and saying like, I want to spend time with my kids and I organize this craft and they don't care about the craft. And she looked at me and was like, Anna, if they don't like crafts, why are you trying to get them to do crafts? I'm like, I don't know. And then the next day I came home and I just did what they wanted to do. And they were way more, and this was my own kids and they stuck stickers on my face and took them off. Like that's not something that I would typically organize as an activity, right? Even as a professional in my own home, it is hard to implement but it's really important and i think for parents in a way it's kind of almost i imagine it would almost be relieving because it's like easier they're they're coming up with the ideas and they're the ones so really following their lead actually takes a lot of kind of the because a lot of times parents are like i don't know how uslps come up with all these ideas and it's true it's like it is hard to come up with a lot of different ideas and everything so it is kind of handy just to be able to follow their lead and do what they're doing. Definitely, right? And I mean, honestly, like playing ninjas doesn't really come naturally to me. So it's not something that I would organize, but if that's what the child's doing, it's Ninja Anna. Making <laughs> 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 appearance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then the open-ended toys. I remember, thanks Morris, she, she was talking about the importance of adaptable activities. And I feel like one of the reasons why open-ended toys can be so helpful is because they're so adaptable. So no matter really what the kid wants to do, you could do so many different things with like blocks. Definitely. And then I mean, with those open-ended toys, it also sparks imagination and you can use it to develop that symbolic play that's so important in language development. Definitely. I kind of want to dive into a little discussion on differentiating between autism and late talkers. I will start off by saying if a family has concerns about autism, the only way to rule it out is to have a multidisciplinary assessment. And by multidisciplinary, that means a lot of people, an OT, an occupational therapist, speech language pathologist, a psychologist, a pediatrician, and possibly a developmental specialist. Um, so I'll just talk a little bit about the things that I would see in an assessment that maybe would lead me to suggest that a family goes and has an assessment. And to me, honestly, if the family has concerns, that's enough to warrant an assessment. So a late talker, as we had talked about before, is there's no other delays, right? It's only the vocabulary size. And that's not to say that you can only be a late talker or have autism. <laughs> there's a lot of other things within that, but we're just going to talk about autism. 
autism and late talkers. So there are some core kind of characteristics that are used to diagnose autism. So one of them would be repetitive behaviors, things like hand flapping, stomping, tippy toe walking, those types of repetitive behaviors that we don't see often in kids that are late talkers. Or if we do see them, we see them for a very brief period of time and the kids kind of grow out of them. Restricted interests, so maybe really interested in Thomas the Train or really interested in cars. And by restricted, I mean, it's, it's typical for kids to have a favorite toy and to prefer one thing, but by restricted interests means another child is trying to play with them a different game and they're only going to talk about Thomas the Train. And it always reverts back to Thomas the Train. You ask them, how are you today? Thomas did this on the TV. And it's like very, very restricted. Limited and delayed play skills. They're not using a lot of that symbolic play that I have been alluding to. Um, they're not really taking turns in, in, with other kiddos. Uh, sensory differences. So either hyposensitive or hypersensitive. That's a very wide array of sensory differences that can happen. So it can be tactile, it can be to sounds, it can be to textures, it can be to tastes. Um, and every, every kid with autism looks so different, right? So I mean, that's why it's a spectrum, right? So their particular, the way that they present with any of these features would be very, could be very different between uh, kids. And then the language delay being a receptive language delay. So they're not understanding. And typically in autism, we see more expressive language and lower receptive language. So they might be able to talk, 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 but they're not understanding as much as what's being said to them. And that would be typically with older students, we see that kind of gap. And then social language. So joint attention. So I had talked about that before about kind of understanding that what I know and what you know might not be the same. I actually need to draw your attention to this so that we're both focused on the same thing because just because I'm looking at the ball doesn't mean everybody else is. Joint attention, showing people things, pointing, taking turns, those types of things. We would see that in somebody with autism. And we might see one or two of those things in kiddos and that doesn't necessarily mean they have autism. So that's why I'm saying it is really important. If you're listening to this and you're a parent and you're like, oh my gosh, my child really loves this or my child's not doing that, don't panic. It's okay. There's a wide range of typical. So, but if you do have concerns, talk to your family doctor and get a referral for a multidisciplinary assessment. I like how you said if the family has concerns, that's enough for you because it's so cliche, but it's so true that parents know the best. You know their kids if kids are worried, like there's no harm in getting an assessment. No, there's not. Uh, if anything, if it's just to ease your mind, right? Parents know their kids. And this is the thing. So you can have a, a child come into your room and you see them for 30 minutes. That's 30 minutes of their two years of their life. And they're with an unfamiliar adult, an unfamiliar room. So you really need to listen to parents and parents need to trust their gut. Yeah, definitely. To recap those, the things that you might see more typically with autism versus late talker, repetitive behaviors, restricted interests, limited and delayed play skills, sensory differences. Sensory differences is interesting because a lot of the times people think sensory is hypersensitive, but it could also be hyposensitive. So that's an entire... Yes, like lots of sensory input seeking. So swinging, you know, loving to be on the swings, spinning in circles, lots of rough and tumble play, running into couches, those types of things, like looking for that um, sensory input. Yeah, that deep pressure. And then receptive language delay, social language, joint attention, and then the gestures. You mentioned a few times symbolic play. Yes. <laughs> 
So I have, and I feel like it's probably important to talk about since I keep bringing it up, isn't it? So symbolic play just simply means using one object to represent another object. So early symbolic play develops around 12 months, which is when most kids start using their first word. And that's not a coincidence. So that is using one action at a time. So, and they're still using things that are very similar. So they're different, but they're similar. So drinking out of an empty cup. So they know that there's nothing in it, but they can pretend that there is. Feeding a baby doll with a spoon. They know that baby's not eating, but it is very similar. Then symbolic play develops around 18 to 24 months and it is a little bit more complex in the sense that they're using things that aren't as accurate or not as accurate, as realistic to the, to the task. So maybe feeding the baby with a stick now, pretending that the stick is a spoon, using a banana as a phone, making a block fly like an airplane. And then around 24 months, kids start putting two actions in play together. So for example, feeding a baby with a spoon and then covering the baby up with a blanket, a, a baby doll, I should say. Um, and then that's around the time kids start using two words. And I actually just posted a video of this on my Instagram of my own son who was feeding a baby doll and then covered the baby with a blanket. And then three days later had his first two word utterance. And he was 16 months. So that is younger than the 24 months, but it didn't matter. It's still developed at the same time. And the same would go for, you know, if your child's doing that at 30 months, those things kind of develop together. So that's why therapists really do work on play because we're trying to teach children that things can represent other things. That's so interesting the way you explained it. The fact that symbolic play emerges around the 12 month mark, right when we want to see first words. And then at the 24 month mark, when we want to see two word combinations, they're going to start combining two actions together. Definitely. Yeah. And they definitely do. That's why it's so important to play. And I go on and on and on about that on Instagram all the time, because I think it's such an overlooked part of even in school, like when you're learning about it, like, yeah, you learn about play and you need to watch it. But I don't think a lot of therapists really understand that it is important. And even as kids get older, I mean, because I work with three to six-year-olds, it just teaches so many skills, executive functioning, social skills. There's so many skills being taught in what we think is just play. Okay, so we mentioned symbolic play. You said it's emerging around the 12-month mark. So what types of play can we watch for before symbolic play emerges? That's a great question. So we think about a little baby, they're doing a lot of exploratory play. So what us, what to us looks like they're just shoving their feet in their mouth or putting everything in their mouth is actually them playing. They're exploring their world. It's one of those pre-linguistic skills of reacting to things in their environment and exploring their environment. So really important. And then after that, they get into non-functional play. So banging, throwing, those types of things. Again, it looks like they're just doing it, but they're, they're learning about their world. What happens when I do this? After that would be beginning functional play. So stacking blocks, driving a car, those types of things. And then comes that early symbolic play. Then the symbolic play comes after that. And then we get into some pretend play and then games with rules. And the games with rules are kind of the highest level of play. So if you think about like an eight-year-old playing sports, they're playing they're always, when they're playing with each other, they're trying to make rules and boss each other around. And that's totally, totally typical. So all of these little things that we think of are like, oh, he's just doing this or oh, he's doing that again, are all important parts of what level play the child's at. And they're all building off of each other. They're all building and they're all, you're not going to be able to play games with rules if you can't do symbolic play. They all build on each other. It's kind of exactly how language works. With exactly. All <laughs> and that's why we play so much. That's right verbal skills we need before language and we need all those types of play before more complex symbolic play and cooperative play and all that can emerge. 
Yeah, they all, it all goes together and it's, it's important to remember that. So if there are parents who think that their therapists are just playing, we're doing a lot more than that. We're typically trying to expand on the play that the child is at, always doing a little bit more. So that imitating and adding is a strategy that I use all the time. So, you know, if the child is able to do one step symbolic play with that one word at a time, I'm going to add one thing to it mm -hmm. and hope that that also increases their play, but also increase, increases their verbal language. Okay. Well, if anyone who's listening wants more information on play-based therapy, I highly recommend you going to Anna D. I always call you Anna DSLP in my head. <laughs> Anna D's Instagram page. It's Anna DSLP. She also has a website. I love your website and I subscribed and I got my freebie. So that freebie is really great too because it goes over what you're just talking about. Yeah. <laughs> And then also, everyone is probably very familiar with how much I share NMD SLP products. I love your products. They're my favorite products. They're so versatile. I can just use them to target so many different goals. And that is just the best thing ever because what like we were talking about earlier, like adaptable activities and being able to do lots of things with one product or one activity is so nice. I would definitely recommend checking out her Teachers Pay Teachers page, her Instagram, her website, subscribe. And do you have a take-home message you'd like to leave with everyone? The take-home message here for families is that if your child isn't using the amount of words expected for their age, seek an evaluation from your speech-language pathologist. Your speech-language pathologist will help you identify areas of concern and areas that your child can improve on. But most importantly, they can give you the strategies that can help you help your child. And that is so important. So the research has shown that 20% of kids who are late talkers don't catch up to their peers by kindergarten and have continued language deficits. And the 80% that seem to catch up still have difficulties in other areas such as literacy, executive functioning, behavior, and social language. So it's really important to have your child assessed and receive therapy as early as they can in order to provide them the best outcome. Okay, well on that note, thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'll see everybody next Monday.